Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung, and welcome to Prophecy Today. You catch me in the Washington, D.C. area right at this moment. We're actually over in Falls Church, Virginia. We're going to be at the International Bible Baptist Church. So many international people living in the D.C. area great opportunity for a church to reach out to these people. And then actually, if they get saved, they become missionaries around the world. Wherever they come from, they're automatically missionaries to that land. Well, we're going to have a great time. We'll be speaking Sunday at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, and then we're going to have lunch together, dinner on the grounds, and finally at 3 o'clock, we'll have the evening service, putting it back at the 3 o'clock hour. And then on Monday and Tuesday, 7 o'clock, we're going to have a great time studying Bible prophecy with the International Bible Baptist Church there in Falls Church. Come and join us, if you will. This is the location of my temporary studios, and we'll be here throughout the entire program. Ken Timmerman standing by. want to tell you also later in the second half hour, I'm going to have an interview with Paul Blair. Maybe you heard that name if you're a football fan. Paul played professional football, the NFL, with the Chicago Bears. He's now a pastor in Edmond, Oklahoma, and he's an expert on the Plymouth Plantation. It's located in Plymouth, Massachusetts, and many historians have said that is the location of the creation of the United States of America. We're getting ready to do a documentary, The United States in Bible Prophecy, and we brought Paul up to help us have a basis upon which we look at the United States, not necessarily a Christian nation, but founded on Christian principles. That's the foundation for looking to see where and if the United States is in Bible prophecy. You don't want to miss that conversation. Boy, he's an expert on the pilgrims. It's going to be a part of our second half hour. Now let's get to Ken Temmerman. So much to talk about always, Ken, when we get a hold of you. And man, it seems you're just on top of every story. Here's a very interesting statement coming from John Bolton, the National Security Advisor to President Trump. He says, if you're blocking the Strait of Hormuz, which is the entrance in and out of the Persian Gulf, which Iran is thinking about doing, that would be the biggest mistake they could ever make. Talk to me, Ken, about what uh, Bolton is saying, and is it a possibility the Iranians are going to try to block the Strait of Hormuz? Well, Jimmy, that, that was a uh, typical Bolton-esque statement, dropping like a 800-pound uh, stone through the floor of the Iranian warships that are uh, going in and out of these Strait of Hormuz. The Iranians just held a major naval exercise there to demonstrate that they had the capability of closing the strait. They have said publicly in recent weeks that if the United States cuts off their ability to export oil around the world, which the reimposed uh, U.S. sanctions are going to uh, do, then they say if we can't export our oil, then nobody will be able to export oil through the Strait of Hormuz. So that is what they've been saying in public. And to bolster that, they just recently had this military exercise with something like a hundred small fast attack craft. Uh, These are souped-up motorboats, if you wish, with rocket launchers on the back, uh, a bit like you see those Toyota pickups used in Africa or by the jihadis in Libya, right? The same thing, but on, on the water. And so they're trying to show that, yeah, we can do this. And John Bolton said, go ahead, guys, make my day. 
you think you're <laughs> going to close the Strait of Hormuz, it'll be the biggest mistake you ever made. So I think what Bolton is doing really is just backing up the president who told the Iranians don't even think about attacking uh, U.S. shipping in the area because um, the last time you did it, we sank one-third of your fleet. I like old John Bolton. He does have that style of Clint Eastwood. Make my day. I love that phrase. Well, there's an Israeli minister in the cabinet of Benjamin Netanyahu that says there's a good chance there will be a renegotiation of the nuclear deal with Iran. Uh, the United States sending Donald Trump, of course, to meet with President Rouhani of Iran. Do you think that is a viable possibility? Well, uh, it, it is, but not yet. It's going to take a while for the Iranians to realize just how biting the reimposition of U.S. sanctions is. And I think they're already feeling the pinch because they were hoping that the Europeans would live up to their claim that they will not reimpose U.S. sanctions. The European Union has set up what they call a blocking order, which essentially forbids any European Union company from uh, complying with U.S. sanctions. But the companies don't seem to care. You've got Daimler-Benz, uh, Mercedes-Benz, uh, that has already said, well, we're not going to do the planned expansion in Iran uh, for our manufacturing facility, our automobile manufacturing facility that we had planned because Donald Trump has said, you do business with us or you do business with Iran. And Mercedes understands that they've got way too much at stake in the United States market to sacrifice it for Iran. So I reckon, Jimmy, that these sanctions uh, are going to really hit hard already. They have devastated the Iranian currency, the real. Uh, it's been dropping like a rock uh, for the past month, really, since Trump announced the due date, the reimposition of sanctions, which is August 6th, uh, sank in. So I think at some point the Iranians are going to come back to the table. Now, what are they going to really put on that table? That's a whole other uh, ball of wax. And the Iranians have been very, very clever at pretending to negotiate and then not negotiating at all. And I don't think this president's going to put up with it. So I don't think it's going to be, should there be a resumption of negotiations, I don't think it's going to go very smoothly. I don't believe so either. Donald Trump is quite the accomplished negotiator himself, and he would probably enjoy the conversation with the Iranians just to see if he could win. Very interesting. Well, there's word coming out of Israel. The defense minister there, Avigdor Lieberman, is warning that President Bashar Assad of Syria is going to rebuild the largest Syrian army that he can as soon as this civil war is over, and he believes that they're about to conclude this civil war, a seven-year operation, about somewhere between six and 700,000 people killed, millions out uh, around the world someplace for, looking for refuge. Uh, but that doesn't sound good, a, a major Syrian army in the near future. Well, it's very interesting that Lieberman made this statement because clearly he's revealing classified Israeli intelligence that the government decided to declassify and make public. I have not seen reports of the Syrian army rebuilding, so clearly the Israelis have intelligence on this, and Lieberman decided this week to reveal it. Uh, it's big news because uh, to see signs such as that, you're talking about purchases of new equipment, in particular tanks. Uh, Lieberman 
said in this statement of his, he said, well, we have to maintain our own tank force and reinforce the tank force, the Armored Corps, up on the Golan Heights. So it sounds to me like Lieberman is seeing uh, indications that the Syrians are, are buying new generation tanks from the Russians, that they are recruiting people into their own armored corps, and they are trying to expand the army. The reason that this is a bit of a surprise is because, Jimmy, the, the Syrian civil war has lasted this long precisely because the Syrian army pretty much collapsed after the insurrection began in 2012. So for them to be able to rebuild it, I don't think it's going to be quick and easy, given that it, it, it fell apart in a year. So it's going to take them some time to do it, but the Israelis are seeing signs, and my guess is they're seeing tank purchases. Yeah, and I think that in light of that, we need to come to this next subject I wanted to bring to your attention. A recently released United Nations report saying that North Korea is cooperating militarily with Syria. Now, that plays into our last story. But also, North Korea is selling weapons in the Middle East. What do you know about this? Right. Well, the North Koreans have long been selling their ballistic missiles throughout the Middle East, whether it's Iran or Syria, even Egypt. Uh, So they see these markets as cash markets, cash and carry, if you wish. We'll deliver the ballistic missiles. You just put you just put the cash and the gold back on the ship as it goes home to North Korea. Well, in fact, that is a part of the axis of evil we're talking about here, which was mentioned by George W. Bush before he went out of office. That would include Iran, Syria, and North Korea. So it looks like that's very active as well as we watch everything unfolding. United States Navy has a report that uh, one of their officials revealed says that Russia and Chinese submarines are near the American coast. I thought I've heard of that before, but is there any update on that? Well, it seems to be that both the Chinese and the Russians are coming as close as they possibly can while staying in international waters to the United States. And we don't know, because all of this is hyper-classified, the the underwater hunt for submarine hunt that goes on in the Atlantic. But what we do know, and and this is quite quite intriguing here, is that the Navy, the U.S. Navy, has now announced it is reviving the second fleet, which Obama said we didn't need any longer. The second fleet is protecting the North Atlantic. There's no more threat. Well, clearly, there is a threat. The Russians are boasting about penetrating our defenses. And uh, we know that the Chinese, as well, with their ballistic missile submarines and nuclear attack submarines, they also are patrolling the world's ocean. They're no longer what's called a green water fleet. In other words, a local coastal fleet. They are a worldwide blue water navy, just like the United States. Smaller, but world capable. That's the voice of Ken Timmerman. Ken covers geopolitical activities for us out of the Washington, D.C. area. And, Ken, we will not run out of issues that we need to discuss as we look at this world. So many things happening. And I report the issues that uh, we feel are setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. So you give us the political side. Prophetically, I'll take care of it when we take a look at the book. Thank you so much, my good friend. We'll talk again next week. Thanks so much, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, David Dolan standing by with a Middle East news update. That's all ahead, right here on Prophecy Today.
Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Prophecy Today is heard all across the USA on the Prophecy Today radio network, but also it is heard around the world through our website at prophecytoday.com. And Jay, there are many other features on our prophecytoday.com website, like daily news updated out of the Middle East as it pertains to what's happening prophetically. Special reports can be heard right on our website at prophecytoday.com. We have Prophecy Q&A available for you. Questions asked in the past can be answered on the website if you just check it out and go to that particular spot. Prophecy Quiz is available, and parts of our Prophecy Today program, if you should miss any part of it, will be heard the next week right here at prophecytoday.com. And don't forget, you can even email your questions to us for our live radio broadcast. Just go to our website at prophecytoday.com. You'll be amazed, you'll be surprised at what you'll find on our website. Be sure to visit us at prophecytoday.com on the World Wide Web. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. Jimmy DeYoung here behind the microphones in my temporary studio in Falls Church, Virginia. We're going to be at the International Bible Baptist Church. This is a group of internationals from across the world that have gathered together, started a church, and I'm going to be teaching Bible prophecy. I'm looking forward to this because my message could spread across the world as these people go back to their families, their homes, and maybe even go back to their nation to live again. Pray for us. Come on over and join us, International Bible Baptist Church, located in Falls Church, Virginia, meeting at the Governor's House Inn. Well, we promised that David Dolan would come to this broadcast table with his Middle East news update. He's here. Let's get it started. David, this week, the Israeli Defense Force pounded Hamas after the rocket barrage that was released on the Jewish state. Talk to me about it. Well, indeed, uh, Jimmy, it was the worst Hamas barrage of rockets in four years over 250 rockets fired in a period of about 40 hours, including a Grad missile. Now, that's very significant because these are much more powerful rockets than the normal ones that are being fired by Hamas. They're supplied by Iran. They have a longer range. This one did, in fact, uh, penetrate Israeli defenses and hit the city of Beersheba, doing some damage there. And the Israelis responded in kind by hitting a five-story Hamas headquarters building in Gaza and many other locations. I noted that the American media was saying scores of rockets were being fired at Israel or Israel was suffering some rocket fire. Well, 250 is not scores. 
That's over 250. That's a lot of rockets. And the Israelis have made clear, and the security cabinet met and reiterated this, that they will not tolerate such action. We've been hearing anyway for the last couple months of you, as you and I have been discussing, of Israeli plans to eliminate Hamas. They're basically saying the Hamas regime has to go. We cannot tolerate it anymore. It's been in there over 10 years, and we've had attacks every year, and this is just another summer of, of this. And, Jimmy, you may have seen the dramatic uh, phone video. Somebody just happened to be on their cell phone filming a scene at a a school um, a playground when one of these rockets in the town of Sterot, which was hit massively during this uh, wave, which is usually the case, it's just a few miles from the border. You've been there, I've been there many times. The children are seen, uh, you know, fleeing and screaming and in panic and total chaos. That's what these things cause. They're not toys. And the Israelis simply are not going to put up with it. And, you know, I've made the comparison many times to the United States. If these rockets were coming across the border from Mexico or from Canada, of course, that's not going to happen in either case. But if it were, how long would we tolerate that? How long would it be before the government that's responsible for this in either case would be targeted and and maybe eliminated? Well, that's where the Israelis have gotten to. Hamas has to go. Whether it's going to happen now, Jimmy, or not, we'll have to see because, of course, the Israelis are still dealing with a very tense situation in the northern part of the country where the Golan is uh, right next to heavy fighting going on uh, between the Syrian forces and the rebel forces and Russia involved in that. So they really don't need a major war with Hamas right at the moment. But if Hamas forces it, if they keep up these attacks, and especially if they fire any more grad missiles, then we are going to see, I believe, a full-scale Israeli army response that will be tragic because many people will lose their lives needlessly on both sides. Well, that information coming from the south of Israel, the Gaza Strip, you mentioned the northern part of the state of Israel as well. Avigdor Lieberman, the defense minister for the Israeli cabinet, making a statement of warning, actually, that Bashar Assad, president of Syria, is going to build a large Syrian army after the end of the civil war, and he believes that civil war is almost completed. This is not good news, is it? No, we've gone from a Syria that was basically passive over the last three or four decades since the 82 clash between Israeli and Syrian forces in Lebanon, major air battles then, that sort of thing, but quiet pretty much since then until this, quote, civil war broke out in Syria. We know it's not just a civil war. It's part of a major Islamic uh, action across the Middle East, in Egypt, in Yemen, and various other places as well, the so-called Arab Spring. And this resulted in this major war. Well, it has indeed turned the government more militant than it was, the Syrian government. Of course, their forces are now actively engaged in combat, meaning they're trained, they're, they're getting training every day, so they're better prepared for battle than they ever were, or at least for the past few decades. They're in action, and they have all these allies there to help them. And unless they push Iran out, as Israel's insisting, that that seems unlikely, unless Russia leaves, which isn't going to happen, then we're seeing a much more powerful Syria than we did before, and a much greater threat to Israel than it was before in a very practical, real way. And we have to add to that, Jimmy, that Hezbollah fighters have been fighting. They've been in 
engaged in battle the past few years in neighboring Syria. So they are also actively uh, ready for combat. The Israelis have the occasional skirmish, but basically IDF ground forces have not been involved in any major action for some years now. Just, you know, the thing here and there, and mostly their bombing campaigns in response to whatever the terrorists are doing. And the army basically is not that ready, maybe. So and this is a worry. The Israelis are not voicing that out loud, but I know officials have told me they are concerned that the other side is war prepared uh, much more than uh, the Israeli side is. What about uh, the word coming from the White House, David, that Donald Trump, the president, ready to release his peace plan there in the Middle East for uh, some type of a resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? I know what you've said about peace plans by others in the past. Do you feel the same? No chance that this would come about? Well, Jimmy, most of the previous peace plans have been introduced in periods of relative calm when both sides were willing to sit down and said so to talk. That's not the case right now. The PLO leader, the Palestinian leader, but it is still the PLO really, uh, Mahmoud Abbas has made clear that he's not negotiating at all. There's going to be no talks. He doesn't want any American involvement. We've got to remember over the last year the Trump administration has cut all funding to the PA. That's, I think it was $350 million after Abbas repeated that he will take some of that money and pay it to the families of terrorists that were killed. He'll pay them these stipends. They give them $10,000 per family. It's coming from U.S. and European and Japanese tax money. So the U.S. cut that off. And so the relations between the Palestinians and the Americans are at an all-time low, Jimmy. I've never seen anything like it, really, in the 35 years I've covered the Middle East. So uh, talks, I don't know. I mean, Donald Trump has done some unusual things, and who knows, but it just seems like it's nowhere near the time. And, of course, we also have this major situation around Israel where the whole region is liable to erupt in total conflict. We had, again, this week action in Yemen and all of this sort of thing going on. So, no, I don't see any chance of it succeeding or, or of talks even happening. And, frankly, Jimmy, the Israelis also, as I said, they're not going to talk to the Palestinians until the Hamas situation is dealt with. Until Hamas is out of the equation, meaning a major war, they're not going to expect any sort of a peaceful resolution, because it cannot happen when the Palestinians are totally divided and fighting amongst themselves, as well as against Israel. We'll stay on top of this story with David Dolan. He's on top of everything happening in the Middle East. One final feature story, if you will, David, There's a rabbi who's gone up onto the Temple Mount. He is calling for all the Jews to come up on the Temple Mount and pray, which is forbidden as of now. And he says he wants to do this to teach the Palestinians a lesson. Would that teach the Palestinians a lesson or actually start a war? Well, it's definitely not an act of peace right at the present time. I don't think it would happen, Jimmy, though, because the Israeli police would prevent it from happening. They've done that many times before. They have the power to do that. They can stop Palestinians going up there and praying, too, if they have to, and they've done that during a tense time. So I don't see it happening, but it does again show that this is in the heart of many Jews, and they do want to see a temple rebuilt, and they do want and have every biblical right and every civil right to be up there praying. It is, after all, Judaism's holiest site on earth has been for 3,000 years. Yeah, that is really 
a place that they, the Jewish people, want to be able to have complete control of and be able to offer their prayers. David, it's always a joy to be able to chat with you about the events happening in the entire Middle East, but we usually focus on Israel and also on the city of Jerusalem and what's happening there. Your key to helping us understand events that may well be setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. Thank you so much, David. We'll have another conversation next week. Thank you, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I'm going to be talking with John Rood. Now, he covers another region of the world key to understanding Bible prophecy. Now, that's the European Union, which I believe is at least the infrastructure for the revived Roman Empire, a major player in the end-time prophetic passages of God's Word. We'll have that conversation with John Rood in a moment right here on Prophecy Today. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung here in Temporary Studios in Falls Church, Virginia. We're going to be at the International Bible Baptist Church all day Sunday and then Monday and Tuesday. Wow, we're going to have a great time on Sunday, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock. Then we're going to have a big meal together with all the church family. And at 3 o'clock, the afternoon and or evening service. They're all combined in one there at 3 o'clock. If you're in the Washington area, love to have you come over and join us, the International Bible Baptist Church. It's in the Governor's House Inn. Well, let's get back to our broadcast partners. We talked about John Rood coming up with a European Union report. We've got to keep a focus on that very key region of the world because of the connection it has with Bible prophecy. Get to that in just a moment. John, great to have you along, and let's uh, begin with this, if you will. The European Union deeply regretting the return of U.S. sanctions on Iran. Now, I know that European Union has been working with Iran trying to get the nuclear deal back on track with the absence of the United States. But I don't see how anybody can negotiate with a nation who wants to wipe another nation totally off the face of the earth. Talk to me about these decisions and this statement by the European Union. Well, Jimmy, you, you take a sensible approach in evaluating what's happening. 
Unfortunately, uh, the nations are not necessarily ruled by their good sense, but in this case, as we've monitored, it's basically their financial interests. So uh, the diplomatic chief from the EU, uh, Mogherini, uh, with some of the foreign ministers, so there's some weight behind this from uh, UK, France, and Germany, they're doing their best now to keep, we say, the deal going, but in reality it's not keeping the deal going because it's only an emphasis on their financial interests. So they want to have their financial interests continue, but strangely missing from the discussion is the fact of Iran keeping their obligations. So what they have done is, and actually this was quite surprising, is they have actually introduced the blocking statute. To my knowledge, this has never been done before, so it was just introduced, I believe, yesterday, and their blocking statute is a legal form from the European Union, and there's a lot of legalities there, but they are to completely protect the EU companies that do some type of legitimate business with Iran from the impact of the U.S. uh, sanctions. So they're basically saying all of the U.S. sanctions don't apply to EU companies doing business with Iran, and they're legally blocking it. So two main takeaways here. It's basically all on the finances, not on the fact of what Iran is doing. Iran is under no obligation with this setup to do anything in terms of the nuclear aspect and agreement. So... That's, that's the basis there. But the second thing is, how will the U.S. react to this? Because a blocking statute's never been done before. This is a, this is a very, very strong measure. And uh, the EU usually comes into some difficult situations by doing this, but this is literally drawing a line in the sand. Yeah, it is, because the president has made this statement We'll talk about that with other broadcast partners. He made this statement that anybody who trades with Iran will not be trading with the United States of America. He will keep his word, too. And that's the truth. He will keep his word on these international negotiations. Meanwhile, though the European Union is willing to deal with Iran, they're not willing, basically, to deal with Israel. In fact, the European Union skipped over Israel as they decided to put a deal together, a communications and transportation deal with the Palestinians. They're going to have a way for the Gaza Strip and then the area of Judea and Samaria to hook up with a transportation from any place in the Palestinian areas over to the port there in the Gaza Strip. They did not decide to inform Israel or bring them in on the discussion. I I can't see it. I don't understand this, John. Hey, we'll deal with you, Iran, but we're not going to even inform you of what we're doing, Israel. This story seemingly underlines one of the most important aspects that we've come across in, in, in recent weeks. Again, it's the EU foreign policy chief, Mogherini. Let's just use her words. I looked up in, you know, concerning the EU-Israel relationship, and I, and I found this quote from the EU policy chief. Any framework for negotiation must be multilateral and must involve all players. Well, I understand this is not a negotiation, but this is completely one-sided. As you mentioned, 
It's plans for a transportation infrastructure that would link Gaza to Judea Samaria. They took 18 months to do this planning. To roll out the, the plan and the construction would be 30 years. So this is way, way, way off in the future. But it also includes areas that are Israel today. And so it's very, very interesting here that the EU, their objective is a two-state solution. This is where they're going. But now what they've done is they have essentially made a position, and their future vision to establish a Palestinian state is being implemented on what is Israeli territory, but not even with their approval. So this this is a bit shocking. And so the reasoning, the European Union response was, we don't need approval for Israel to formulate this master plan on transportation, and essentially because the construction that's in the areas of Israel today is not currently happening. So because it's just a plan, it's a future vision, it's really an implementation to establish a Palestinian state. So that leads us uh, again to the question, why is the EU so one-sided? Why does the EU historically take sides against Israel? Even when they had no official foreign policy, it was the only thing that was there. Now with an official policy, there's been a lot of friction between the policy chief, Mogherini, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu. They've been canceling meetings. Uh, it's a very difficult situation here, but I find it really startling that the EU has unveiled a 30-year plan on Israeli territory and saying we basically don't need your approval. Yeah, quite interesting that they would do that. And the fact is, this is laying a foundation for a relationship with the European Union, which I believe is the infrastructure for the revived Roman Empire and the Jewish state of Israel in upcoming times as foretold in Bible prophecy. By the way, the Prime Minister of Israel said he's just about given up on the European Union. Well, we'll have to watch that in the future, and that's a part of a prophetic scenario as well. John, thank you so very much. It's key that we get a hold of you and have these insights from you about what is happening in relationship with the European Union. It does set the pace for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. Thank you, my friend. We'll talk again soon. Thank you very much. We're not going to have a conversation that I recorded in Plymouth, Massachusetts with Pastor Paul Blair. We're doing a production, a DVD documentary entitled The United States in Bible Prophecy. And in this production, we're going to ask two questions. Is the United States in Bible prophecy? Or the other question, has and will God use the United States to set the stage for ultimately Bible prophecy to be fulfilled? We thought it would be great to bring Paul Blair in. Paul, a former NFL football player playing for the Chicago Bears, he's now pastor of a church in Edmond, Oklahoma, and he's an expert on the Plymouth Plantation. Paul, I want to thank you right now publicly for all that you did to help us out. We flew you in. We knew that you were an expert in this area. We're so grateful for what you've 
brought to the table as it relates to our project on Is the United States of America in Bible Prophecy? But in Plymouth, Massachusetts, I do believe, and many historians have said, this is the location for the creation of the United States of America. Let me ask you, why is that the case? Well, the unique form of government that was established here is why this place was truly the birthplace of constitutional government that we have adhered to here in the United States. You know, the pilgrims left England late because of some travel difficulties. One of their ships had sprung a leak. They originally were planning on coming in two ships. They had to go back to Plymouth, England and start over again. They wound up sailing across the North Atlantic at a very dangerous time during the winter months, and they were blown off course. Uh, They were aiming for the Hudson River, and they wound up landing up here at Cape Cod. And one of the issues that that presented was that their charter was not in effect. So they were basically in a form of anarchy. There was no uh, governing authority over them. They were families free to do what they wanted to do. And, of course, they recognized that their only chance of survival was if they stuck together here in the New World. And for the first time in history, now there had been covenants drawn before between kings and subjects. For example, the Magna Carta between the the lords in in England and and, uh, the king of England. But there had never before been a document where a body of equal men, recognizing that none of them had the right to rule over another, came together and constituted a governing authority, delegated few powers to that governing authority which they created, and then pledged to be governed by that rule of law. So the very first constitution for civil government was created on November the 11th on the deck of the Mayflower, and it was called the Mayflower Compact. And that Mayflower Compact actually set the stage for these people, the pilgrims, to arrive here in Plymouth and move forward with their experiment in a way the Lord had set in place of biblical government. Now, talk just briefly about the fact that God had miraculously set this place aside for the pilgrims, but they had some struggles afterwards. But talk about the uniqueness of God's preparation of this place. Well, we might be right in the middle of God's will and still having some struggles. Let's face it, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego found themselves right in the middle of the fiery furnace. But there is no doubting God's providence and God's sovereignty and how the pilgrims wound up here. Uh, As we said a moment ago, they were actually aiming for the mouth of the Hudson River. But because of the storms, they were blown off course. They attempted to go ahead and, and sail down to their original destination, but the winds were contrary. It says in their writings they were unable to get around the Cape, so they finally determined that this must be God's will. They must be supposed to settle here. So while the ship was in harbor, they literally explored for some 30 days trying to find a perfect location. And they wound up discovering what we now know as Plymouth. And what was unique about Plymouth is not only was there an abundance of fresh water there, but there was some 20 acres of land that had been previously cultivated but was now unoccupied. It turned out that a tribe called the Patuxet, from which Squanto came from, used to live there. They died four or five years earlier because of a plague. The other Indian tribes believed that this land was cursed. So here you have this this spot of land, some 20 plus acres, already cleared and cultivated, plenty of fresh water sitting there, and no one here wanted it. So the pilgrims were glad to take it. They didn't steal land from anyone. They literally had land that was set aside and unclaimed that was where they staked their claim. And, of course, as they began uh, building, you know, they got here in the middle of winter, and after they just spent 66 days on a ship being you know, tossed to and fro, and they were bodies were weakened, and, and, of course, there were no docks. So as they got out of the small 
small boats and waded ashore. They, they caught colds and became sick. And over the course of that first winter, 47 of the 102 wound up dying. So here they were in March. The Mayflower had already returned to England, and they were on their own, building their new community of Plymouth Plantation. Obviously, they needed help. God knew they needed help, and God sent them help. God sent them an English-speaking Indian that literally just came walking right into the middle of the camp and greeted them. And this one was Samoset. Samoset went back and got his buddy named Squanto. And Squanto, you know, they not only spoke English, but they liked the Englishman. And Squanto literally, according to Bradford's writing, he was a gift from God that kept them alive. You know, he, he taught them how to fish. He taught them how to plant and, and how to fertilize their crops and literally taught them how to live here in the New World. If it hadn't been for an English-speaking Indian that liked white people happened to just wander into their camp in the middle of March in 1621, they wouldn't have survived after that time. So there is no doubting God's miraculous hand of providence in guiding the pilgrims here, selecting this spot of land, and then bringing Squanto to their aid when they most needed it. Just a moment ago, Paul mentioned a man named Bradford. That's William Bradford, who actually motivated the trip over from Europe and here into Plymouth Plantation, and he established it. He wrote a history about it. That's how Paul is knowledgeable of how everything came together. Well, that was 1620. Ten years later, the Puritans came over. They went into Boston. We were there in Boston Commons, and you explained how the Puritans were going to try to establish human government according to biblical principle, but they needed some help from the pilgrims. Right. Well, the Puritans were a group that recognized that a lot of things in the Church of England were wrong. However, they weren't wanting to separate from the Church of England. So they had in their nature this idea of top-down government. And of course, in the Church of England, you had bishops that would assign pastors to particular parishes. And it was the pilgrims themselves that came up with the original idea of, of course, from the Bible, where they constituted a church government. And then they as church members elected a pastor to be their chief shepherd and, and, and lead the flock. Well, Dr. Fuller, who was a pilgrim, wound up going up and spending time in Boston with the Puritans when there had been a sickness there. And he was able to have tremendous influence on them and the way that they looked at civil government, literally steered them in the direction that we now appreciate and adhere to. In fact, one of those Puritans was a man named Thomas Hooker that eventually was known as one of the fathers of the Constitution that wound up going down and settling Connecticut. So the influence that the pilgrim had, because you know you had 102 pilgrims landing here in 1620, there were some 20,000 Puritans that wound up migrating to the New World and settling in Salem and Cambridge and Charleston and Boston. So the impact that the pilgrims and their form of church government and form of civil government influenced not only the local uh, community churches that were here throughout New England, but also the form of government that spread throughout New England, ultimately was the form of government that we adopted in 1776 when we declared our independence, and then, of course, established the United States Constitution. You know, in that Boston area, there's a location of one of the universities well-known around the world called Harvard University. Actually, a part of the founding of Harvard was under the direction of a man. In fact, he contributed the land uh, where the university is today named John Harvard, and of course, the university named by him. And this was, again, preacher men stepping out to establish a higher learning institution to teach preacher men future preacher men how to preach and 
unbelievable insignia on the gate as we enter into Harvard. Tell us about that. Well, it's it's uh, ironic how godless the major institutions of higher learning in America have become. But as you just mentioned, Jimmy, you know Harvard was the very first college here in America, and was primarily established as a preacher's college, so that as the first generation died off, they would have a learned clergy to be able to preach the Bible to future generations. But on the insignia that hangs there at one of the main gates, we visited Johnston Gate the other day. The logo for Harvard now that we recognize has the word veritas on a shield. And that's all that they talk about now. It's truth in Latin. But in the original logo, you have three words. You have veritas, then you have Christos, and you have ecclesia. So you have truth in Christ and his church. That was the foundation of Harvard. That was the foundation of the success of the country that we are still enjoying the fruits of their labor. Yet now we have become so intellectual that we are denying Christ. We are denying the the redemption of the blood of the Lamb. We are denying the importance and effectiveness of the church. And we are claiming to lay hold of truth without recognizing who the truth is. And who when we study about him, gives us that truth. That was 1636. Now, everything's going pretty well, but not quite as good as it could, and so we move into the early 1700s. By that time, the residents of this area need an awakening, a, a biblical awakening that brings about the Great Awakening. You know, man's nature never changes. We, throughout time, when times are tough, we will get on our knees, we'll repent of our sins, and we'll beg God to intervene. But as soon as things get pretty good, we tell God to leave us alone, we can handle it on our own, and then we make a mess out of things again. Well, that's really how the foundation of America was. By 1662, oddly enough, the congregational churches began to compromise because they wanted to keep their kids involved in church. And they actually passed a covenant called the halfway covenant, where you could be a church member or a half church member without making a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Well, that's crazy. You can't be a part of the church unless you're a Christian first, but they were compromising, trying to stay a, a part of the lives of the youngsters. And of course, as they compromised the gospel, you had a country or a, a Massachusetts was full of lost church members. And of course, that set the stage for the Great Awakening. What began, ironically, in the very same church that was led by Solomon Stoddard, who pushed for the halfway covenant, one of his descendants, Jonathan Edwards, wound up preaching there in 1729 and began preaching messages like sinners in the hands of an angry God, and the country began to light on fire. And then shortly thereafter, this young, dynamic evangelist named George Whitfield came to America from England and literally captivated the country. As we talked about the other day, he was one of the first American celebrities. And he just greatly affected the entire country with this message that you must be born again. And that fact was probably the motivating aspect of the lives of these people living in the New England area, in particular in Boston and Plymouth, uh, to be free from Europe itself, from Great Britain. And so because of the motivation from biblical principles, they pull away, the Revolutionary War begins. Well, it was those pastors from the Great Awakening, their descendants understood. And here's another ironic statement. You know, we have been told we're never supposed to talk about politics in church. And the reality is that God, as you've mentioned many times, is the one who established civil government. So the founders believed that the pastors were supposed to be experts on principles of government. 
since God created civil government, since pastors are supposed to be experts on the Bible, then you would look to the pastors for what God's design and will was for civil government. And the pastors were who taught the colonists governing. So it was the pastors that history refers to as the black-robed regiment, which is a derogatory term that the British laid on them. But what it referenced was these pastors in their black clerical robes that would ascend to their pulpits every Sunday and inflame the people's hearts toward liberty. It was these men that trained the people, and not only trained the people, but they didn't just talk about liberty, but they were willing to fight and defend it. And many of these pastors actually served side by side with their parishioners in the fight for independence. And they were the ones responsible for letting America declare its independence. That happened in, of course, 1776, July 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. George Washington was the military leader of this revolutionary battle, ultimately later to become president of the United States. But that Declaration of Independence was just a testimony from the people of America saying to the rest of the world, we're going to be a free people under biblical principle. Well, they felt not only was it important to declare to Great Britain that they were seceding from British tyranny, but they also wanted to teach the rest of the world and show the rest of the world why they were justified in doing what they were doing. Our founders did not believe that they were themselves rebels. They believed that King George III and Parliament had rebelled against the proper role of limited civil government and had violated the colonial charters. They had appealed time and again. As a matter of fact, the First and Second Continental Congresses, they didn't declare independence. They appealed to Great Britain to stop imposing acts of tyranny illegally over the colonies. Of course, Great Britain would have nothing to do with it. And finally, as Jefferson said, it came to a point when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for a people to dissolve the political bands which have joined them to another and to assume among the powers of the earth a separate and equal station to which the laws of nature's God entitled them. They declared that it was God that gave them the justification for doing what they were doing because of the tyrannical improper acts of the King of England. Of course, after the Revolutionary War, George Washington, that military leader during the war, was elected as the first president of the United States. We're off and running with the United States of America. And our production, this documentary, is the United States and Bible prophecy one of the questions, or will God use the United States to set the stage for his prophetic plan to unfold? That's our project. We're going to give you advance warning when you can get a copy of it. Should be ready sometime in December. But, Paul, I've got to thank you so much. We had to have that biblical basis to understand America's part in Bible prophecy. You're an expert on it. Thank you for coming out from Oklahoma to be with us on the project. Jimmy, it's been my honor and pleasure to work with you. Let me remind you that I pre-recorded that interview while Paul Blair and myself and our video team were in Plymouth, Massachusetts as we began our production on our brand new DVD documentary, The United States in Bible Prophecy. I'll keep you abreast of when it will be published and distributed. We're looking at some time in December of this year. Well, we're going to have Jim Jr. come to the microphone. He's the camera guy on all of these productions that we do, DVD documentaries. And he's back from Plymouth. He's back at his studios in San Antonio, Texas, to put this program together. But, Jim, if you will, 
Let's have some questions from some of our listeners during our special time of Prophecy Q&A. Janelle sends in a question. She says, uh, will the United Nations be the one world government during the Great Tribulation? Janelle, I'm not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet. I cannot tell you that for sure. I don't know. According to the text, I can't find any place in the scriptures, the United Nations. I can say this. They are a forerunner, the precursor to what's going to happen during the tribulation period. There will be a international world headquarters, a power base economically, governmentally, and politically in Babylon, the literal city of Babylon, which is located 58 miles out of downtown Baghdad. So that will be a one-world economic, political, governmental system, and it's found there in the book of Revelation, chapter 18. As to whether the United Nations is going to be a part of that, I can't tell you for sure, but I'm absolutely positive uh, that this is a part of the stage setting that is going on across the world, preparations for all of the Bible prophecies to be fulfilled, written in God's Word, as it relates to the ends of time. So uh, keep a focus on what the Word says, and then allow that to be the microscope or the, the spotlight that you put on any other current event or geopolitical activity that may indeed be setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. Thank you, Janelle, for sending in that question. And we have a video response to that question, actually. In the video of Rome Rising that we shot, Dr. DeYoung examines the historical Roman Empire and looks at the revival of the Roman Empire that is prophesied in God's Word. We shot it on location in Jerusalem, Ephesus, and Rome. Rome Rising will shed a lot of light on how current events are setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. Go ahead and call our offices, 423-825-6247. That's 423-825-6247 and order your copy today. We're going to have to take a break and when we come back we'll be having a conversation with David James right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. We're going into the last half hour. If you've stayed with us this long, might as well make it the rest of the way through. I'll take a look at the book in the last eight minutes of this particular segment. And in a moment, we're going to have David James come to this broadcast table of our weekly conversation. We're going to focus on dispensationalism. You probably don't know how to spell it. Uh, do you know what it even means? Well, keep the dial set right here. It's key if you want to have the proper understanding of Bible prophecy. By the way, we're here right now in Falls Church, Virginia. This is where my temporary studios are set up. On Sunday, all day, we're going to be at the International Bible Baptist Church. It's located here at the Governor's House Inn. And they have an opportunity to house their church there. I think that's a great idea. Sometimes churches seem to spend so much money on buildings, we ought to be spending the money on people. And when you have an opportunity to use a location that will just advance the cause to reach people, great idea. Appreciate the church doing that. Looking forward to teaching Bible prophecy at the International Bible Baptist Church here in False Church, Virginia. Come and join us. By the way, the meetings, 10, 11, and then dinner on the grounds, and finally a 3 o'clock afternoon service instead of the evening that gives you the rest of the evening for your family and what you'd like to do as you prepare for the work week 
ahead. I hope you'll get to my website, prophecytoday.com. On the home page, left-hand column, if you'll scroll down, you'll find my poll question. Love for you to answer that question. Here it is. President Trump is getting ready to release his Middle East peace plan. He's going to do that to try to bring resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Now, here's the question. Do you think this plan has any chance for being successful? We've made some comments on the broadcast today that should assist you in giving us the correct answer. I'll give you this much of a clue It all is going to be settled, a peace process, albeit a pseudo-peace process, in the first six months of the tribulation period. Again, go to my website, prophecytoday.com, answer my poll question, and while there, go to Joshua Travel, find out about our tours to Israel. You need to come and go along with us. We'll have a marvelous time, and then our upcoming School of Prophets conference in December. All the information at my website, prophecytoday.com. We now bring to these microphones David James. It's that time of the week for the conversation that David and I have here at my broadcast table. The focus this week, the loss of giants of the faith and the future of dispensationalism. David, this week we received word that we just lost two giants of the faith and also involved in dispensationalism. These men who joined those who have gone before in recent years, now in the heavenlies. Well, that's right. We lost Dr. Robert Leitner, who was a Dallas Seminary graduate. He began as a professor at Dallas Seminary in 1959, so he had 47 years as professor there, impacting literally thousands of students who would later become uh, pastors and missionaries and Christian leaders around the world. So his impact was incredible. He authored something like 25 books, I believe. So he will be greatly missed. And the other one was Dr. Larry Waters, not as well-known, perhaps, as uh, Dr. Leitner, but uh, a giant of the faith in his own right. He and his wife, Mary, and their family were missionaries in the Philippines for 26 years. Larry had very debilitating headaches, uh, called cluster headaches. It would basically wipe him out at at, uh, certain times and actually force them off the mission field. But he still continued ministry, and when they got back to the States in, uh, I think, 1999 or so, he came to Dallas Seminary as as a professor, and he continued to impact a lot of students. And I've actually followed some of the tributes to him on Facebook from those in the Philippines, Philippines pastors. He was involved with teaching, church planting, theological education. So his legacy in the Philippines, as well as at DTS, is quite amazing. And, uh, you know, as we've talked in the past, as we've lost Dr. Pentecost, Dr. Zook, more recently Dr. Toussaint, these older stalwarts of the faith are, you know, they're becoming fewer in number as, as all of us get older, and it's really important for us to remember them, their legacy, and also think about where we are, what happens as we go forward. Yeah, that is absolutely very much concerning for some of you younger guys. Uh, At 78, it's not quite as concerning because I'm going to be joining them in the heavenlies in the not-too-distant future, I would imagine. 
Well, both of these men, as you mentioned, were Dallas Seminary graduates and professors, and you also a graduate from DTS. What about it? Did you know either of these men up close and personal? Yes, to a couple of different degrees. I didn't know Dr. Leitner real well, but I did have him for uh, one of my systematic theology courses at Dallas Seminary. It was a great course. He was a very humble man and yet very knowledgeable. And one of the things I often say about uh, so many of these great Dallas Seminary professors is if you didn't know who they were, you wouldn't know who they were. In other words, they didn't wear their degrees on their sleeve. They weren't trying to impress anybody with their knowledge. But, you know, you have a man like this who wrote 25 books. It's quite amazing that you have someone who is both so knowledgeable and so humble in the classroom. And one other thing I would say, of all the books that he wrote, uh, one of the things that I found most helpful in ministry, he wrote a little book called Heaven for Those Who Can't Believe, which deals with the issue of what happens to infants or young children when they die, and what about those who are uh, mentally disabled and incapable of placing their faith and trust in Christ. So it was a very helpful book in ministry to help provide a very sound theological foundation for that. And as far as Larry Waters goes, uh, I was introduced to them by Dr. Roy Zook in uh, Dallas one year, and as a result of that meeting, he taught at the Bible Institute in Hungary uh, several times. And so it's a great loss. It's a personal loss, but we also know that our loss is their gain. Well, that's a very important question asked by many when I'm in Prophecy Q&A about what happens to children and or the disabled, mentally disabled, at the time of death. If you can uh, get me the way to get a copy of that, I'd love to have that. It's a very, very interesting discussion that you have with especially mothers and grandmothers. I always find out they lead the charge on those questions. Well, earlier on today's program, Prophecy Today Weekend, we were looking to the past and discussing the Christian heritage of our country with Paul Blair. So I'd like for you to consider the present and the future, especially with regard to dispensationalism. And I think that's an important discussion to have. I would say that we are not necessarily a Christian country, but there are certainly Christian underpinnings. But what is interesting is that the early founders, we're talking about not the founding fathers, but going back to the Puritans and Pilgrims, they were looking to actually establish a new Jerusalem. And so they were not dispensational in their theology, even though they had a Christian foundation for the way that they live and even the way that the country ended up being founded in terms of what we more recently called a Judeo-Christian ethic. But dispensationalism really didn't become systematized until John Darby came along, the Plymouth Brethren in the 1830s, it began to be, I would say, recovered, because dispensationalism is as old as the New Testament, and in fact as old as the Bible, but it was lost over the course of the millennia. John Darby and others who joined with him began to recover it in about the 1830s, and actually I would say 
that Christianity in the United States, beginning in the late 1800s and on through much of the 20th century, was largely dispensational. And dispensationalism uh, actually laid the foundation for the breakaway from what happened to schools like Harvard, Princeton, the Ivy, Ivy League schools. What happened to them is they departed from the Word of God. Men wanted to have a biblical foundation for church planting, missions, Christian education, and so actually it was largely led by dispensationalists who first started the Bible Institute movement, then they established conservative independent seminaries that were independent from mainline denominations, and out of that came the independent Bible church movement, and then uh, worldwide missions that were largely fueled by dispensationalism. So it's uh, it's really interesting how this all developed, and it's uh, interesting that we're talking about this in light of your discussions with Paul Blair. David, I realize that most of our listeners are somewhat familiar with dispensationalism because we often talk about that subject here on the broadcast. But we always have new listeners eavesdropping on these conversations, so maybe it would be helpful to briefly explain what dispensational is and why it is so important. I think I would start with the second question first uh, concerning why it is important, and I would relate it based upon an approach to the Bible, and that is what we always talk about, the literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic. In other words, we take the Word of God seriously and we interpret it in context. And so dispensationalism is actually a theology. It's actually dispensational theology, and it's the result of interpreting the Bible this way. And even those who don't accept dispensationalism, many of them, who I would say are a little bit more honest, would say that if you take the Bible this way, you understand it this with a literal grammatical historical hermeneutic or method of interpretation that you will end up being a dispensationalist. And dispensationalism is really very simple. It simply means that we understand that there are several phases in God's program. Most of us would see that there are seven phases in God's program that we call dispensations, and that God does different things in different ways at different times. So, for example, things were different be, uh, before the fall than after the fall, before the flood and after the flood, before God called Abraham and after he did, before and after the law of Moses, and yet there's a, and there's a dispensation yet in the future that will be made up of the tribulation and the millennium, and God deals with man in different ways and different times for different purposes. David, how would you evaluate the present state of dispensationalism? Well, for many years, I've been somewhat distressed. I just turned 60 this year, but even 10 years ago when I turned 50, I I was telling many people, when you get below me in age, that it's sort of a, a wasteland, a desert wasteland when it comes to dispensationalism, as covenant theology and Calvinism has been sweeping through evangelicalism. Dispensationalism has really kind of been pushed to the side, and we haven't had the writers, and we haven't had men of the caliber of those who we even discussed that have gone on before us. So I have been seeing that uh, it's not in a really strong state. It's certainly not as strong as it was 40 years ago. Can you recommend some help for people who want to understand dispensationalism and the Bible more correctly from that dispensational perspective? 
Sure. There are a few out there that I would recommend. The classic uh, book on dispensationalism is the actual title of the book is Dispensationalism by Dr. Charles Ryrie. Another great book, uh, There Really is a Difference by Dr. Reynolds Showers, highlights a difference between covenant theology and dispensationalism. There's another book that I haven't read, but it's highly recommended by Michael Vlock. It's Dispensationalism, Essential Beliefs, and Common Myths. Then, of course, as commentary goes, Bible Knowledge Commentary is, is great for this. A theology book would be a Basic Theology by Dr. Ryrie. And then Tom Constable's notes uh, on the entire Bible, they're free, and uh, they're available on the Internet. You can just do a search for that. Th- these are great resources. Absolutely, and I've read each and every one of those books. In fact, when I first took Dispensationalism, Dr. Ryrie's book was the textbook. So you're going bottom line with great helps, books that will assist you in understanding dispensationalism and then helping you to apply dispensationalism to your study of the Word of God. David, great research. Thank you for bringing up these two dear saints that are now in the heavenlies but were so key in helping train up men to do what God's Word says to do, preach the Word in season and out of season. Thank you for the conversation today. We'll have another one next week, David. Thanks, Jimmy. Great to be with you. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, all that we've talked about on the broadcast today, I'm going to go to the Word of God. We'll take a look at the book and come up with what it all means as we look to the future. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Once again, Prophecy Today presents the School of Prophets Conference, December 10th through the 13th at the Spring Hill Suites Hotel, along the shores of the beautiful Tennessee River in downtown Chattanooga, Tennessee. Join Dr. Jimmy DeYoung as he personally walks you through the Bible and helps you discover important prophetic passages from every book of the Old Testament. Dr. DeYoung will also look at the prophetic passages in the New Testament from the book of Acts right through the book of Jude. Dave James will present graphic and PowerPoint design with a special emphasis on teaching aids for pastors and Bible teachers. This course is great for pastors, teachers, secretaries, and IT professionals as you learn basic principles of graphic design focusing on composition, color, typography, and imaging. These meetings are more intimate because they're smaller in nature. There will be time for Q&A with the teachers and fellowship with participants. For more information, call 423-821-3635. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. 
it's time right here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. You give us the opportunity of taking 90 minutes of your time every single week for the purpose of giving you current events happening around the world in light of Bible prophecy. Here on Prophecy Today Weekend, we bring our broadcast partners to this broadcast table with key reports on what is happening. They are must-listen reports for any Bible prophecy student. You know, God's prophetic plan is revealed through current events, but in alignment with his prophetic scenario that's found in God's Word. God's Word is the absolute, and that tells us what indeed will happen, and then you use that as a light to shine it on the current events that we'll be discussing with our broadcast partners to see how the stage is being set for these prophecies to be fulfilled. By the way, if you missed any of the interviews with my broadcast partners, simply go over to prophecytoday.com, go to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network, and there you'll be able to listen to any and all of the conversations that I had during the entire broadcast. Be sure to tell a friend they need to hear what we're talking about on Prophecy Today Weekend. Now, if you will allow me, I'm going to reflect on the news from the headlines that were given to me by our broadcast partners, and we'll see about a prophetic perspective on all of these current events. Our first broadcaster was Ken Timmerman from the Washington, D.C. area, and Ken brought up a very important report talking about John Bolton, who is the national security advisor to the president, and he was almost saying, make my day. Remember old Clint Eastwood? Make my day. He was talking to the Iranians who have been holding military exercises in the Persian Gulf. They've gathered very near to the Strait of Hormuz. Now, that's the entrance and the exit out of the Persian Gulf. That's where the oil will flow to the rest of the world. It's a key geographical location, and the Iranians are threatening that they're going to block it up and stop the flow of oil to the nations that need it to continue even their existence. You don't want to miss what Ken had to say, reporting on what John Bolton said as well to the Iranians. Dave Dolan has his Middle East news update each and every week with us. David has served as a journalist for over 35 years in the Middle East. The big headline this week was that the Israeli Defense Force has been pounding Hamas in the Gaza Strip. Hamas has fired over 250 rockets, missiles, a Grad missile that was produced in Iran. Some terrible things happening. Homes have been hit where one of these missiles landed. You need to understand how the Israeli Defense Force has gone at these terrorists, Hamas, there in the Gaza Strip. And the leadership of the Israeli Defense Force saying that war is very near. Now, let me talk about what Ken had to say about John Bolton's threat. Of course, Iran is listed in the alignment of nations that will come together and form a coalition, Israel, off the face of the earth. 
Iran is recognized by the name Persia there in Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 5. But you can study about Persia. Go to the concordance, find the name, look it up and see what it has to say. They were very friendly to the Jewish people early on in their history, but not so now. They're ready to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. And whatever they do is helping us to have tangible evidence of how close we are to that prophecy being fulfilled. And then when you talk about Dave Dolan's report from the Gaza Strip, how the Israeli Defense Force going after this terrorist organization, Hamas, you'll understand that when the Bible talks about a conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians, it's referring especially to what we have been reporting. And the Palestinians, according to the Bible, are going to be wiped out as if they have never been. That's the little book of Obadiah, verses 15 to 18. The key region of the world that you need to keep watching is the European Union. European Union regrets that the United States has implemented sanctions on Iran, even stronger sanction. And John Rood tells us the European Union is more concerned about the money than the Iranians putting together a nuclear weapon of mass destruction. The bottom line, according to John, is that the Iranians are playing a key role in that alignment of nations. They'll come and try to destroy the Jewish state of Israel. Had a great conversation with Pastor Paul Blair. He was an NFL player, played for the Chicago Bears, now a pastor in Oklahoma, and an expert on the Plymouth Plantation. We're doing this brand new DVD documentary, The United States in Bible Prophecy. We wanted to start at the very beginning where the pilgrims landed in Massachusetts. And there they had an experiment in biblical understanding of human government. They started it there. And in reality, that location is the creation spot for the United States of America. You want to listen to what Paul had to say, great educational conversation. We had Q&A. Jim Jr. came to this broadcast table with some questions from you, the listener. Love to interact with you that way. Send your questions into us, prophecytoday.com, and then put in that email, attention prophecy Q&A. And David James, with his weekly conversation with me, we talked about understanding dispensationalism. Now, you may not even be able to pronounce the word, but it is key if you want to be able to interpret God's word the proper way. If you want to know how Bible prophecy is going to play out, you need to study the prophetic passages. One-third of all the Bible, one in every three pages, is Bible prophecy, but you have to interpret it properly. That's why you use a dispensational approach to your interpretation of the Word of God. Now, having said that, you know what? If you approach your study of Bible prophecy through a dispensational pathway, you're going to find out that the rapture of the church is the next event on God's calendar of activities, and it is so close that that rapture could actually happen today. And having said that, Nothing left for me to say, except let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is a listener-supported production of Shofar Communications in Chattanooga, Tennessee.